Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Stack. This time we continue to celebrate the best interviews from 2021. And of course, a happy new year for you. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a highlight from our very own Monaco Media Summit. Here's a highlight from the panel with Monaco's Tyler Brulé, Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards, speaking with journalist and broadcaster Christine Ocran. Andrew, maybe we'll start with you to, I guess, a little bit of an ambition for the next three hours, but um, how you see the landscape at the moment. Part of this, of course, today is a celebration of 10 years of, of broadcast, but when you look at the, the state of, of media, maybe what do you want to hear or be reflecting on over drinks by, by 6.30 or so? Well, as an editor, what I hope is that we get to talk about something called stories and reporting, because I think over the last 10 years, we've heard too much of this word content, and there's been a notion that what we're producing as journalists, as photographers, as people out in the field, is just so much filler to go in between the gaps on the internet between ads and and not really anything of value. And I think that what I want to come back to is the notion of what, what makes people pick up a magazine, go onto a website to read a newspaper. How do you engage with people and how do you come good on the promise of, of what journalism should be, which is delivering truths and looking at things that we, we all want to know about. Tom? Yeah, I guess one of the things that I'm most enthusiastic about is reassessing this idea that when people talk about traditional media there's a temptation I think among some to use it pejoratively and actually the traditional values of journalism storytelling uh, making a real investment not just financial in crafting those stories and building real communities and relationships with your readers listeners viewers it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and I think it's been an interesting moment to reflect 10 years into Monocle 24 as well as almost 15 years of Monocle what value you can deliver if you take that more long-term view. Christine, it's, it's wonderful to, to have you here. And you're part of the founding family of Monocle24. You were there in the very early days. You are, of course, a journalist and broadcaster that many of us have grown up with. It was crucial that uh, you became part of that moment to infuse not just a sense of the continent, but I think really having a global view on things to, you know, we talk increasingly about this, this Anglosphere, this sort of discussion that is only happening uh, in the English world, and then we see the power and, and sometimes also just the alternative view, and I say alternative in a positive way, of the French media. But maybe just give us a little bit of a snapshot, just even rewinding to the start of, of, of France 24, how, you, how you've seen the landscape changing and maybe also setting us up for some topics we want to discuss today. But yeah, what you see as challenges, whether within a French or European or even global context. Well, I believe that the challenges are pretty much the same. You know, the channel isn't that wide after all, except in some people's minds, unfortunately. <laughs> By the way, it's wonderful to be back in London. It was a strange feeling, actually, at Garb, you know, you know, and sort of feeling like going into another universe. Anyway. Um, <laughs> No, I think it's pretty much the same. I, I think we, we've also gone through this, the same uh, symptoms, uh, being obsessed with technology and forgetting that what matters is actually stories, good stuff, good stuff to look at, good stuff to read, good stuff to listen to. 
And I think that uh, what has also uh, showed, and, and probably uh, the COVID moment uh, has uh, increased that awareness, is that we need strong brands. We need brands in the media, just like in any other aspects of our consumption, uh, even politics, I'm afraid. And so the idea that uh, with all these uh, conspiracy theories, with all the, the garbage that goes on in the social media and so on and so forth, the only way uh, to get through, and it works, is to build on strong brands. And I think the event this afternoon is very much to the credit of the brands uh, you three have been able to uh, develop. We get to see lots of owners of French newspapers and editors of French newspapers, and we're always struck by a, a slightly more positive conversation about how they're engaging with readers, a, a newspaper like Les Echo. Is that unusual that actually the newspapers are doing so well at this time? Is it, is, is it a benefit, oddly, of these difficult times that people are returning to newspapers? Why do you think the news brands feel a little bit stronger in Paris at the moment? I think pretty much the same way our economies are picking up. I think there's an appetite, obviously, on the ad advertising side, but also I think there's energy <laughs> that hasn't been really uh, used up or consumed, you know, for two years, and, and it's out there. And uh, I think also, at least in Paris, all these uh, papers, editors, broadcasters have been humbled by a, a course of events which got totally out of hand and which nobody had forecast, obviously. And I think, again, as you, Andrew, pointed out, that the, the need to provide interesting stuff. And I'm particularly interested and fascinated with the, the boost for radio. Radio, which was supposed to be, you know, really the obsolescent media, the old one, uh, uh, with, with there, the technology hasn't enslaved us, quite on the contrary. It has given people much more freedom to choose and select. And the, the particular channel I work for, which is France Culture, uh, which is the, you know, eyebrow which was supposed to be so boring. Well, first of all, it's not boring. And second, we have increased our impact in incredible numbers, you know, like 4% a year. Why? Because I think that people are aware that just skimming over stories is just not good enough. And that is something which I think is good for all of us. That was a highlight from the Monaco Media Summit. We move on now to the iconic skateboarding title Thrasher, incredibly influential and still going strong. It was great talking to Michael Burnett, editor-in-chief of the title. I got into skating because I saw Back to the Future, the movie with uh, Michael J. Fox gets pulled behind a car on a skateboard. And that was the first time I'd seen like tricks and I'd seen like the wide boards. So that captured my imagination as a kid. As I got older, I, I never grew out of it. I got more and more interested. So I saw Thrasher for the first time in maybe 1987. I saw him that at the time before the internet, it was like, there wasn't a lot of information, especially I grew up in Texas, which is not like, it's a, not a very progressive state. You know, it's a pretty conservative place. So to find a magazine with pictures and 
stories was a, a huge, huge eye-opening experience for me as a kid. So yeah, that was kind of the start. Amazing. And, and you basically started your career as a, as a photographer, you used to take pictures of skaters there as well. And I think that's how perhaps the magazine paid attention to your work. And, you know, and, and here you go. Yeah, well, sort of. I made what's called a zine, which is like a fanzine. It's like a homemade magazine. There's still lots of people doing this today, but especially pre-internet, this was the way you got the word out. So I was at university in Colorado at the time. So I had just made my own little zine and I would mail it to everybody, all the skaters, all the skate companies I knew of. So from the beginning, I liked the whole process. I liked the design. I liked writing. I liked photography. So I had a few things run in the magazine. While I was still in school and then when I graduated, I was like, hey, can I have a job? Can I have a job? Can I have a job? And Jake Phelps, the editor, finally said if I moved to Southern California, they would give me a small retainer every month. So that's how I started. But I always liked everything, not just the photography. And I'm still a photographer. I still shoot photos for the magazine. And tell us about the importance of the print titles. Because, of course, Treasure, you know, I had a look. I mean, you have quite a big online presence as well. But, you know, of course, the iconic print title is still there, still looking beautiful. I love the covers, by the way. I mean, I, I think they're fantastic. But tell us about the importance of the print title. It's kind of the backbone of the operation because, you know, we're this brand that's been around since 1981. So it's like the magazine is like the heart of the operation. You know, we're going to always make that magazine. It's like something you can hold in your hand. You can tear the picture out. It can put it on your wall. It's just that kind of experience. That said, we're not afraid of the new technology, you know, like obviously we go crazy with video, we go crazy with YouTube, we go crazy with social media. It doesn't really matter to me. Like I'm not like one's better than the other. It's more like being excited about skating, being excited about the imagery and the stories we want to tell and the skaters we know and just being a part of it. So whenever the tool is, Thrasher will make it part of what we do because we're we're stoked about skating but the magazine yeah you know it's a different experience you sit down with it it's a more intimate experience it's a slower experience but it's also just so tangible and i think for people who appreciate that it's very important and michael one interesting thing about skateboarding I mean, of course it's always been there i'm not saying it. it's of course it's definitely not a new thing but I feel there's such a young generation, even from the country that I am from, Brazil, of those young kids interested in skateboarding. And, and it's fantastic that there's a platform, Thrasher, because of course you have kind of your older readers, but I'm sure skateboarding is attracting also this younger audience. They want the lifestyle as well of skateboarding. I think it's fascinating, right? I think it's always, I mean, the kids are always going to run it, you know, like that's where the energy is because... The way skateboarding works, there's not really a league. There's not really teams like that for most people. So it's like you make it up with your friends. So it's an extension of your neighborhood friends. It's an extension of how you play with your friends. But it's also an adventure. And it's also very exciting. And it's also like you explore. When I was a kid, you explore the city. You know every part because you're always looking for something to skate. You're always looking for the new obstacle. And then it's like, for people, it's your physical challenge. It's like testing yourself. You know, young men and women, they want to test themselves just like the cowboys or, you know, people in war. It's like, that's the time when you, you really test yourself. So it has all that stuff. At the same time, it's like, because you do it for fun, 
right? That's why you do it. 99% of the people, the payoff is the activity. It's just that you have the money, you just do it because you like it, you know? So because of that, it lets people get really creative. And so people create their own music, people create their own artwork, people create the tricks, the physicality of it, or they discover an old trick and make a new version of it. I understand why it attracts kids because there's a lot of kids who, you know, they don't want football practice. They have enough rules at school, so they want to get out and be wild and do their thing. So that's why the kids are always bringing me energy. And now it's cool that there's older people that can do it their whole lives and enjoy it. But like when you're around kids who are really fired up, you're like, whoa, this is what I want to do, you know? I would like to know as well, give us a little update about the latest issue. I think I saw the cover for the October issue on, on Instagram. And if you could just tell us a bit some of the highlights. I love the covers as well. I don't know who is your design team, but it, it's impressive. Our design team, it's Adam Cregan and Cameron Padgett. They're two guys. They're really cool. Yeah. No, they do a fantastic job. I don't know. I mean, that issue in general, it's, it's exciting because we have Breezy on the cover. This is our fifth woman to appear on a Thrasher cover. And right now, they're a very exciting generation of women skaters, which is super duper cool. It's my mission to get the best and coolest of them involved in what we do. When I was a kid, I never saw a woman on a skateboard or a girl on a skateboard ever. And then in the nineties, I saw three, you know, and I'd featured them in the magazine. So this is really, really cool. So Brianna Gearing's on the cover, doing a really cool trick. She's got a cool outfit on right there. I don't know, like philosophically design wise, we've got certain departments and we've got certain things that are consistent and other things that are more freestyle. In general, as the last print magazine, my mission has changed a little bit. I'm not as concerned with progression because it was a space race, the skate tricks for so long. And now it seems like it's more of a renaissance time. And some, you've probably seen this, some kids want to dress up like it's 1991. Some kids want to dress up like it's 1981. And it's like people are integrating all the different styles of skating. They can skate a ramp, they can skate a pool, they can skate a handrail. So I try to represent that. I try to show that. I try to tell now that skating is multi-generational, I try to tell bigger stories. So there's simple stories, but I did an article last month that was skaters with jobs. And I interviewed a Washington lobbyist, a brain surgeon, a scientist, you know, all these different career people that love skating, excellent skaters, but who have different careers. To me, that's interesting. Thrasher shouldn't be a fanzine for the pros. It's not supposed to be People Magazine for pro skaters because skating is bigger than that. And you can be terrible at skating and you're still a skater and you're still part of the team, part of the crew. That was Michael Burnett, Editor-in-Chief of Thrasher Magazine. Finally on the show, I spoke with the editor of one of the best-selling titles out there, People Magazine. I spoke with Dan Wakeford, the magazine's editor-in-chief. I've been a People for seven years, and I was the deputy editor to begin with. 
and I was overseeing half of the content for the brand. Half the brand is celebrity and entertainment, and the other half of the brand is human interest and news. And I'd done a lot of work in the celebrity world for all of my career. And so I loved for spending four or five years overseeing all of the crime, the human interest, and the politics content, and the royals content as well. And so uh, from then, I have become the editor-in-chief in the last um, nearly two and a half years I've been editor-in-chief and it's been an amazing, thrilling ride. And it's quite interesting that you are, you know, you're British and and you're the editor of such an American magazine. I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, it's perhaps one of the most recognized magazines uh, over there. How did you find out about knowing a bit more about American sensibilities, what the American market is interested? Because I'm sure there are quite a lot of differences between US and the UK and what they want to read or not. I came over here 19 years ago and I previously worked at Heat magazine in Europe, which was um, really the center of the zeitgeist at that that time. And coming to America, it was a bit of a shock how different the readers were. I think the entertainment, I think the subject matter isn't that much different. I grew up with American culture, like American culture is global culture these days in many ways. But I think it's the sensibilities of the readers that you have to adapt to very quickly. America was based on a much more of a Puritan idea. And so there is a lot more conservative views and and, and there's a moderation from, I think, from what the reader actually wants. Whereas in Europe, it's a lot more shocking and shock and scandal and how you shape a story and, and an editorial proposition around what the readers want and then sometimes there's a lot more uh, government bodies who who interfere in the journalism whereas in america we have the freedom of the press but what you choose to print and the direction of your magazine is very much focused on readers and that's what i love about magazines that is really delivering a unique proposition to readers and what's fascinating, I was reading about the circulation numbers of people. It's, it's incredibly high. And it's interesting because at some point people were saying, oh, people are not interested in buying kind of a print title, talking about celebrities or human interest. I mean, that's clearly a lie, just looking at the success of people. I mean, and of course, you're present online. You have, you know, all sorts of other media channels. But I think, tell me about the importance of print. And, and if you can tell us a bit about the numbers as well, because I, some I, people might be surprised to know that it's still incredibly high. I mean, to be honest with you, we don't consider like ourselves one thing. With people, we consider ourselves a platform. We have 118 million consumers a month. Like the brand is so powerful that we've, and we have so many different channels. We don't see ourselves as a magazine, a podcast, a website, a TV show, any of these things. We see people as its own distribution system in a way. We have a huge scale in every channel. And so we don't have the issues and the challenges that many magazines have. We'll launch a new product and it will be the center of another brand's universe. But for us, it's just another element. But print is still so incredibly relevant and really still is the anchor of our brand because it's the prestige of getting a cover of people that celebrities want to be on the cover of the people. 35 million people see each issue of the magazine. We have such a trust with the readers and the subject matter that it's such a powerful combination. We spend so much time and rigor to the journalism with entertainment and journalism. Sometimes you think it's just fun and easy, but the amount of effort and the brilliant journalists that we have on our teams working on this, that it really does bring about that trust. So it means that 
if I knock on the door of the biggest movie star in the world or somebody, a, a regular folk who's got an inspiring story to tell, it's very, very often that they will tell their story and, and sit down with me because of the trust that we have gained over the 47 years that we've been in business. And there's a certain level of prestige as well to be on the cover of People magazine that maybe celebrities wouldn't have on their own kind of social media space. I think there still has, it still has a certain cachet, right? Oh, it, it definitely does. You're the most talked about person in America if you're on the cover of People magazine. And with, I mean, social media is definitely one of our biggest competitors. The idea that um, a star can put themselves in the center of their social media and speak to their fans, but they're speaking to the converted, they're speaking to the choir, they're speaking to the people who know them already. With people, you're introducing yourself to 118 million consumers who might not know you. And also there's an authority because we are journalistic and there is a rigor there and there is an outside body and an authority saying that this person has value and is, is interesting and their story is relevant and captivating. And Dan, one thing that I'm always curious about, the cover, you know, I always had the impression, I mean, in the, in the past, I remember there was a time that when Jennifer Aniston was on the cover, magazines used to sell very well, including, of course, people. Is it still the case? Is there a kind of a name that if you, if you put that on the cover, you know it's going to sell well, you know it's going to do well, or are things a little bit different these days? Well, as soon as I answer that question, the person won't stop, the person will stop selling. So I sh probably shouldn't answer it. But since you're so nice, Fernando, I will. Um, it's not as straightforward as that. Jennifer Aniston still sells very well. There are many different factors that make somebody sell well. And I have to weigh many of them up. We have with 3 million subscribers and some of them like completely different things to what the newsstand people like. And so there, is me there are many different factors as what makes somebody interesting. My philosophy is sometimes that the story is bigger than the star. If it's something that is relatable to you as a reader and, or it's something that you have a primal fear about, that that really helps the connection to what will sell as a story. There's got to be an element of surprise, but then really at the heart of it, you really do have to like the person. You have to, you want to buy into this person's world if you're buying a magazine cover at the newsstand. And so the people who do very well, there's one, one sec sector of people in, the, in recent years who have done very well. And I think they are aspirational people in the lifestyle space. People who you may not even know, um, the Napiers from HGTV or uh, Chip and Joanna from the Magnolia Network. These are couples who are invo involved in the renovation world, but also have very relatable families, very relatable struggles. And these are people who you really want to buy into their world and their aesthetic and, and learn something from. Then also in the idea of possibly and more in the idea of projection, the royals still do very well. The royals are much more popular in America, even so than they are in the UK. I think that's because Americans have brought, been brought up on Disney and there's a fairy tale fantasy there. So the idea of projection and looking at what somebody in that fairy tale life and what is going on with them, and then also add into that um, the drama around the royals in recent years that it makes them very compelling and captivating cover subjects. I mean, you, you even have a special edition on the Royals, right? Uh, I mean, they're yeah. so popular. 
In, uh, during lockdown, we launched a new special issue, which is absolutely beautiful. It is on the best paper you can get out there, and it's a quarterly product, and we have access to many royals, and we do a really deep dive, and it's a niche publication on people who really love the royals, and it really has amazing magazine craft, there's gamification, there's interaction, and then also there's beautiful, deep photography, really amazing storytelling, and um, we get really close to the subject matter. And I love the tongue-in-cheekness of certain editions like The Sexiest Man Alive. I mean, it, it, it became such a cultural topic. I think, I think even the actors, they love when they're nominated there. I think, I think that's definitely one of my favorite issues of the year. I mean, I think that is a brand in itself, The Sexiest yeah. Man Alive. It is such a um, privilege to be the person who's ultimately choosing Sexiest Man Alive, but it is also the bane of my life. I get celebrities messaging me on Instagram asking to be the Sexiest Man Alive. We get publicists pitching it all of the time, and there are many, many different factors that go into it. And I think in recent years, what I've really tried to focus on is like what is in the zeitgeist? what do people respond to for character traits at the moment and and trying to find people who are a force for good during the last two years of my editorship i really want to focus the brand on being a force for good so sexiest man alive does um bring about a lot of fun and escapism but i really think during a crisis it shows the soul of your brand and i really wanted to make sure that the brand is focusing on doing good in the world and we do that by choosing people who who also do good and amplifying their stories but also we've had very successful um, campaigns for mental health. We have a Let's Talk About It campaign where we get celebrities to talk about their mental health. And uh, most recently, a, a, a big campaign for um, why I'm getting vaccinated and leveraging powerful figures uh, encouraging vaccination. Oh, doing good is also sexy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, one interesting thing, Dan, you know, the US is such a big, vast country. And you mentioned that you have a lot of subscribers. Is that where the majority kind of, of People magazine is sent to? Because I still think here in Europe, you know, people go to the newsstand, but I think the US is a completely different story. I'm sure you can find it in a supermarket or in a bookshop or a bookstore, but I think subscriptions is massively important oh. there, right? Yes, um, it's 3 million subscribers and we're the second most expensive subscription in the world, second to The Economist. And so it's, it's an expensive subscription, but it's a quality subscription that's worth it. And then um, I think the newsstand is probably about 10% of that figure. So there are many different things to weigh up. I've actually been looking at different models lately in the last summer to a lot of success of having actually two covers at the newsstand quite often. So you'll have two six page stories in the magazine and I will do different stories, one for subscribers, one for newsstand or a combination for newsstand because the idea that you have different audience segments on the newsstand, whether that's crime lovers, whether that's royal lovers, celebrity fans or, or new different news stories so we've worked on many different ways of experimenting and it's great working for a company that really encourages that experimentation well because my final question would be like what are your plans you know for for people in general for this year and next and i think that's that's one of them perhaps <laughs> But that is, I mean, we are, we're, we're launching so many new exciting products in the digital arena, in the TV arena. We've, I've leveraged the brand with many different new TV shows. Um, this month, we have a new TV show on Discovery and, and uh, Discovery Plus and Magnolia, the children of 9-11. We've, we've got many documentaries coming back out. We've got some amazing new digital products and new podcasts. 
But I mean, I think generally, broadly, I'm really always trying to strengthen that focus on stories that you can't get anywhere else. It's a great privilege helming a brand like people where I can get access to people and they trust me. So it's always trying to think about finding a story that isn't going to be told anywhere else and that I, I can tell and I'm trusted to tell. And that, that's what I'm here for. I love telling stories. I got into journalism to tell stories. And this job is one of the best in the world to do that. That was Dan Wakeford, Editor-in-Chief of People magazine. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever for our editor, Nora Hull. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And meanwhile, you can listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Music